Hello, everybody. My guest today is Sterling Shrout, a man who struggled a lot through his life with addiction to heroin, being thrown into prison, being in rehab and addiction, and trying to maintain sobriety. His story is really something you all need to hear, as well as some of the things that are truly wrong with the justice and correction systems. Let's get clean. Sterling, great to have you on. I got your name right this time. <laughs> Thanks, Colin. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah. So, here on Just Dumb Enough, uh, we show the vast majority of people on Earth that they're not the experts they'd like to think, and that's by talking to people who've actually lived the topic. So, I like that. Obviously, I have you on today. Uh, tell the audience a little about yourself. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> my name's Sterling Shroud. I uh, currently live in Dayton, Ohio. I'm 30 years old. Um, from 15 to 28, I spent 13 years either on probation, parole, um, in prison, rehabilitation system uh, centers, or just somewhere in some point of this, like you know, legal criminal justice system. You know, going back to the beginning, it was drug trafficking. As a juvenile, I grew up in pretty like pretty extreme poverty um and that was the avenue i don't know if it's from movies or what the ultimate thing was but that was you know selling drugs as a way to to change my situation i didn't really have super great mentors and things like that to teach me other avenues um and then once you kind of get that cycle started it's really hard to break um so you know 15 to 18 juvenile probation drug trafficking um, there technically was a little, like, I don't know, six-month window um, at 18 before I relocated. So that was all in Montana, came here to Ohio, realized that all the kids that I knew here uh, were selling drugs and that I was probably better than them. That's probably a horrible way to word it. But um, So I took over that scene really quick and um, garnered a lot of attention for that. Basically, it uh, read it. Like, right after I was 19, I got my door kicked in by an Allied Combined task, Enforcement Task Force um, for conspiracy to engage in pattern of corrupt activity for running a drug ring, possession of dangerous ordnance, I had explosives and guns and stuff. And that wasn't, like, you know, as Scarface as it sounds. It's just what you did in Montana. You'd blow up a washing machine, you know, shoot random stuff at a junkyard or something. It's just whatever. They didn't look at it that way here, though. So... Um, yeah, there was a ton of initial felonies or whatever. Um, anyways, that happened. I didn't tell on anybody like they wanted me to, so they were kind of harsh. It ultimately got pled down to aggravated trafficking, aggravated possession, and then possession of a dangerous ordinance. And um, I got three years mandatory in prison. So all of 2021 and 22, uh, I was incarcerated. Uh, so I went from you know selling drugs to uh prison and i just had this horrible luck man every time i got a new cellmate or i'd get moved it was a lifer and it and i think it's because i was young and that was their way to control me it's like put me in a room with somebody that's killed people and will probably kill me if i act up but um that was a really 
bad psychological experience for any, you know, young adult. Uh, so at 23, I get out, uh, it was like four days before I turned 23. Um, and you know, I get out on parole did post-release control because I did all my time. So that couldn't give me parole. So post-release control. And then I tried initially and then you know, I tried without knowing too much. I didn't know how to live as a felon. I didn't know what, you know, limitations or ways around those limitations or anything like that. I remember specifically applying for fast food job thinking like, you know, what, screw it. I have to do something, but like nobody else will take me at least, you know, I can fall back on like flipping fry and burgers or whatever and nothing against me, but it does that. But I went and applied and I got turned down at fast food. And then that was like the moment where like, I specifically remember it like collapsing. It's like, Oh, well society's rejected me. Like I'm going to do whatever I want. Um, <clears throat> so that probably wasn't smart to move either, but, um, basically, you know, committing crimes, using drugs. And that's where I got into like real drugs, heroin, cocaine, crack cocaine, um, everything. Um, the heroin definitely stuck. Um, so I got really strong on heroin. I ended up committing some felony and running from it from here down to Florida, but into a treatment program down there. And felony, like the felony specifically, it was like receiving stolen property. I used a credit card to buy some cigarettes or something. Doesn't matter. Um, moving forward, I went to the rehabilitation program in Florida. I actually got two years sober down there. Uh, worked for the place, not the Salvation Army. Shout out to them. They're great people. They took me in. They didn't have, um, they let me work for my stay, basically. They have a really great treatment program down there, or most of them. But at two years sober, um, ultimately I relapsed down there, get strung out again in Florida. Um, I still have some like good people around me down there. End up kind of moving around down there a little bit, moving back to Georgia for a brief time, then make my way back to Ohio and um, settled up basically with the county. Um, had my stuff together enough that I had an attorney, whatever, tried to get that felony I'd ran from taken care of. And that's not how they felt about it. They didn't care that however much time had gone by, they were uh, still pretty mad. So ended up with like a quarter million dollar bond. And then there's sparked like another three years of probation and then me getting back on heroin and relapsing and just continuously making my life hell for myself. So fast forward, there's a nice little, you know, 15, 13 year chunk of time. I, it ultimately, it culminated in overdose in 2019, um, August of 2019. Uh, I never overdosed or at least significantly like I did. It was a pretty severe overdose and then the circumstances, whatever. Um, I came back to when they were getting me to the hospital and that was like a, I remember a lot of it, but from like a different perspective, it changed my views on a lot of things, but I had a direction to go from there before I was like extremely lost. I didn't have much purpose or a path. Um, from that, I realized I don't want to die. Like I really don't want to die. So that was the direction I had to go from there. Uh, my son was like six months old. Um, I had managed to stay sober uh, while my fiance was pregnant with him. Um, and then I had relapsed for the brief little window overdose. I didn't want to leave him without a dad and stuff. So 
from there, uh, you know, if I'm going to be here, I might as well try to figure this out because I've obviously failed the last like 28 years. Um, so from there, I end up actually saving up a little bit of money, like $3,000 and like, you know, turn to the Google gods. Like, how do I get out of poverty? Um, how do I invest this to stop being poor? And, um, it led me to like, uh, basically real estate, but something in the way that I heard the information, it was a podcast that led me to a real estate podcast, which led me to books. And I started just consuming information and, um, the skills I'd picked up from the lifestyle I'd lived weren't that great, but I'd had a lot of like little Craigslist construction jobs and I'd learned a lot of trades or enough about a lot of trades. And um, I was able to use skills that I had with the education I was getting and start to change things. So now I'm a homeowner with rental properties and really good friendships and relationships and people that um, we're all working together now. So that's a backstory and where I'm at now. Oh, that's great. And uh, honestly, congratulations on getting, you know, clean and sober and finding a, a good path. It sounds to, to move forward for sure thank you yeah i know i've never personally struggled with addiction but it definitely by the numbers they you know they talk about millions or tens of millions dealing with addiction in the u.s on a a fairly regular basis i think yeah last i checked we were on track to break our previous records of overdoses overdose deaths specifically this year um I know the pandemic was really bad just based on traditional AA recovery stuff. Like um, addicts by themselves don't tend to do that great. Um, so the, a lot of the isolation, all of the change, all of these other elements, um, uh, plus stimulus money and, uh, you know, nothing against it by any means, but I know where my checks would have gone, what, the, what I would have spent that on. Um, and that's extremely dangerous too. Yeah. And then the odds, like you mentioned, um, so me and my partner um, were both former heroin addicts for, you know, um, so, you know, like with recidivism rates, I had a four out of five chance of going to prison back to prison within, uh, I think it's the first five years of being out, um, which is 2013. And then for one person to get sober and stay sober is, you know, the odds aren't amazing, specifically for two people who are, both trying to get better to be in a relationship together. I don't actually know too many of those. I know of a couple examples, but significantly less than anybody than just single people getting better. So yeah, definitely trying to beat some odds. Yeah, it's definitely, and you know, trying to take care of yourself and then, you know, try not to give too much of yourself to taking care of someone else as well. Mm -hmm. I imagine that can't be easy. Yeah. um, And one of the things that, you know, our big focus, I have a, seven-year-old stepdaughter basically um i've had her since she was three and not saying i've always made great calls and stuff but um her dad has uh passed away and you know is somewhat related to the the same thing we're talking about i don't want to get into details or whatever um so i mean it's you know most of my friends here like uh on lives and things like that um but one of our big focuses sorry i started to get off track that's um, all good is the kids is not raising kids in a you know full of like trauma or horrible habits or things that are going to you know make their life troublesome or you know i don't know what causes addiction specifically or you know something specific not to do to the kids i figure not you know 
being strung out around them is probably a good start, but trying to make sure we're teaching them like coping skills and how to deal with people and emotional intelligence. And, you know, when they get older, um, education is general financial education and just things that set people up for a successful life, stuff that we've had to learn on our own, just, um, trying to make sure we're being good parents while not being junkies, while not ruining each other's lives at the same time. So it does get, it does get tricky. Yeah. Uh, do you think, I mean, obviously, you know, having someone to work for, like, you know, having a kid to, to try and stay clean for, do you think that helped the both of you? Uh, yeah. So, you know, and like I mentioned, my son was six months old when I had relapsed and overdosed. Um, one of the things that being sober has given both of us is, uh, like self-worth. That's something that we've had to develop, like specifically as it relates to the kids. Um, it was hard to connect to them, especially when, you know, you're screwing up, try not to cuss too much. <laughs> especially, you know, oh, you're you screwing can, up. You can swear. It's fun. <laughs> okay. Um, because, you know, obviously that's going to put a distance between you and other, other relationships anyways. And then one of the things that like is how I gauge uh, currently how I'm doing is how connected I feel with my family. So if I don't feel like I can bond with my kids, if I don't feel like we're, everything's flowing well, that's, that's something I'm sensitive to because of the love I have for them and how I care about, you know, our relationship. Um, so that's like my first sign that something's out of balance. I'm working too much or I'm, you know, being a dick for no reason, you know, yelling at them, you know, whatever. But, uh, I mean, yeah, it definitely is a uh, something to draw from um, anybody that believes in you or cares in you. I mean, that's been over and over huge for me. Um, other people that think I can do things that I couldn't you kind of start to gain self-worth, borrow it from other people, and it becomes your own over time. That's the trend I've seen. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, sorry to, I'll just jump backwards and then I'll try and work my way back up to present day, if that's all right, right with you. So I know you started out, you know, you'd moved into, uh, to Ohio and kind of taken over out there, but did it start with using or did you start out with selling? So, I mean, technically it starts out with using, uh, cause I was smoking weed with my friends and weed isn't necessarily cheap. One way to be able to afford your drugs, you know, weed or, you know, hard, hard drugs, um, is to sell them. And that uh, either pays for your habit or pays for your habit and some or just pays, whatever. So initially, you know, I was using drugs. Uh, but as far as like the depths of what I really relate when I think of addiction, what I relate to that, um, that's where like literal, you know, literal heroin, cocaine, um, that comes in for me. If people can get addicted to anything from shopping to sex to um, working out, whatever there's levels of addiction and stuff like that. But for me, it was, I'm sure it was something to do with ego. I'm sure it was, you know, creating money or creating an income and being popular through selling drugs or whatever. You just stupid shit. You got, you get caught up in when you're young. So, and then what was that like, you know, day to day, just trying to, I mean, it sounds like, you know, trying to get through, but also trying to, you know, find a, a way to, find yourself i suppose yeah so i didn't even i mean as stupid as it sounds 
I didn't even know anything was necessarily wrong through prison until like going down literally in 2016, I believe, 15, 2015, going down to the Salvation Army uh, rehab. Like the thought of being a, a drug addict, I was, I was just doing drugs. I didn't know I had a, a, a problem that I couldn't stop. I thought I just liked drugs and that's what it was. Getting sober, relapsing, trying to stay sober, trying to get back off drugs. But like when you, when it changes to like, I no longer want to be on drugs and I can't get off of drugs. That's where that mental click was for me of like, oh shit, I actually stone cold drug addict. Yeah. Yeah. I think I answered the question now. Yeah, no, it was good. <laughs> it was good. I followed, I just jumped down tangents from time to time. So I'll try and steer myself back in. But uh, no, it's, it's really awesome just listening to like, you know, you explain what you're going through in those times. So, I mean, you talk about doing, you know, different drugs. Um, it sounds like heroin was the kind of the worst of the bunch for you, at least. Definitely the drug of choice. Do you think it's the most addictive? Uh, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I'm sure yeah, everybody's different, but for me, like a hundred percent. So the, there's, there's more than just like needing to alter or numb or whatever when you add in the physical dependency factor, um, that's extremely hard to break. So imagine like, this is probably too far with COVID or the flu or, you know, anything where you're just super sick, probably way more serious than that, but we'll go with those examples. Uh, anything where you're extremely sick and um, like, instead of suffering until the sickness is over the entire time, you know that like, down the street for five bucks you can just end it you can just end the suffering that is a hard hurdle so outside of being like locked in a cage while you detox i've done that multiple times i've gotten or at least yeah i've gotten uh detox on my own like not leaving a house or not leaving a room not leaving whatever the psychological aspect of that is extremely difficult and then if you have people to support if you have bills that need paid if you have yeah if, yeah, if you have to support yourself or other people, especially finding the opportunity where it's like, oh, I can go die for five days and not be fine. Like, that's extremely hard, too, especially if you don't make an excess amount of money. So the physical dependency mixed with the, the physical chemical dependency mixed with the, you know, actual addiction. Um, those things are freaking potent, man. Yeah. Strong. strong. Well, and that, that thought, you know, the way you said it, it was really good. Where you say, you know, for $5, like, you want this feeling you're in right now to go away? I can, mm -hmm. you know, I have a thing. I can make that go away for 5 bucks. Um, yeah. And yeah. that's, is that one of those that you have to be really, were you really careful about trying to hide that from people? Or do you think it's kind of just went under the radar? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, both situations, just depending on when we're talking about um, people can obviously see if you're like really bad addicted to something, people are going to notice like your life is in complete disarray. <laughs> like something's going on. There's all kinds of flags. And if you have an employer that you want to keep, you know, you're not going to be like, Oh, Hey, I'm, you know, strung out on heroin. I need to peace out for like five to seven days. If I don't die, I'll come back. Okay. Um, probably better. Maybe. 
Uh, you know, like those aren't, those are really tough conversations. There's a lot of stigma around addiction. Um, and for good reason in most cases, maybe not all of it, like it agrees to be, uh, some transparency, some, um, acceptance of it, but also, you know, the, the bad side of things, like somebody smoked crack most hours of the day is probably going to steal something from somewhere. Uh, cause the stuff's not cheap. Same with heroin when it comes down to it. Luckily I'd never burned bridges in, in that manner. So like my family, I should say my mom and my siblings, um, the rest of my family, there's like a big religious thing, whatever. Another, that's another podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, but like being mostly open with them about it, obviously nobody wants to come out and be like, Oh yeah, I'm completely strung out. And I've like screwed everything up. It's hard to bring that stuff out. And that's part of what makes it worse. Um, it's really hard to get better when you can't share your struggle with anybody or get advice or help. Um, especially when it, it can be a really shameful thing. So, you know, luckily I had a few relationships that I could call on and like all of my siblings, like, brother and sister have experience in that same field. I could talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get too far off. No, you're, you're great. <laughs> I'll let you just go. Well, it's fascinating yeah. to listen to. So, you know, it's, it's like a genuine experience, you know, to actually listen to you talk about it. Yeah. Uh, try to be as transparent as possible for these same reasons. Like the more people understand, um, and the more other people in like in a situation I've been in, I'm not saying to just make it okay and fine and whatever, but, um, until you know more about something, it's hard to really you know, do much with it. So. Right. Wow. Sorry. I was uh, trying to reel myself back into what I was thinking about. Um, so using, when was the first time you went to a rehab? So that was, uh, 2015 say april 2015 um that was the very first experience and you know you're supposed to go in there completely detoxed and you know ready to enter rehab and of course i you know i don't even know what kind of substance i used to fake the piss test or whatever but managed to get in then like had to like detox in like 90 degree florida 100 percent humidity working on a dock um it was that was really rough, um, but then that that's that was my first experience in rehab, and I I managed to stay sober for two years. And then, as much as it was not a fun experience, it was good. It was great. the The examples of people that you know, a lot of the people that graduated from there, they hired um, the whole community. Basically, they're centered around recovery, so you have people to look up to, you have people to help, and they come in if you're a little bit ahead of them. That was really good for just grasping that people get better. You know what I mean? And that's something that I had never really seen. So, you know, I dove into that. But ultimately, yeah, that that experience gave me a direction to go in. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, people can get better. They can enjoy their lives, things like that. I still was lacking certain pieces that I had to go find out. I'm not saying that like it's impossible or uh, I'm, I'm not trying to put down anything in this, in this regard, but like I was making 10 bucks an hour. I was renting a room uh, from some friend's mom. I think my car cost 600 bucks, something like that. And, um, that took me like a year to get. And from that point forward, there was no, 
I didn't have any real avenues to change my situation or I didn't know how to change my situation from there. And so like working, you know, some overtime on top of a 40 hour week and side jobs, my spending habits sucked. My credit sucked. I didn't, you know, like I was still so far away from being even just a homeowner or any type of like monetary gain or progress. And that's, all well and fine, but for me, that wasn't something that kept me motivated or anything. Um, so I ultimately did end up relapsing when a friend, like a close friend, I'd stayed, uh, I was friends with that whole two years. He relapsed, and not knowing enough about addiction recovery yet, all these other things yet. Um, I still kept a close relationship with him, ended up snorting a uh, Delonted on the freeway or something, probably. I don't know. Something like that. As it's a hilarious story. I'm not going to get to that. Um, and then it's not hilarious. Like the Darza or uh, it's a lot on the highway part, but other details, but whatever. Um, that sounded horrible. Like it's not <laughs> recreational drug use on the highway. is a horrible idea. So to clarify. No, you're good. <laughs> Public service announcement. That's right. No, um, nobody do Delauded on the highway. <laughs> no, highly don't recommend that. Um, so, that there, there was a lot of stuff that I still didn't like have the pieces in place. Um, but the examples I got there and like understanding that people actually can get better and have good lives and stuff. I just didn't know how to get from you know A to E or D or something. So sure. And uh, steps in the middle. Yeah. So is there, I mean, was there a type of treatment that kind of helped you the most or was it just finding those pieces along the way? Um, yeah, it was definitely finding the pieces along the way. It, it's not super funny, but, uh, there's the old, like, what about Bob or something old nineties movie or something, but, um, talks about your death therapy cured me or something like that. Your death, yeah. Whatever. Um, that, that experience for me was extremely impactful. Like I joke to some extent about it. I've lost a lot of close people and stuff. So I don't mean to make light of actually dying but uh for me that that was enough of a wake-up call that i've never uh used since then um and i don't foresee it happening it sounds freaking awful um i yeah yeah i like not dying i'm gonna stick with that as long as possible yeah um, that's definitely probably preferable to the other option yeah man yeah so obviously the overdose experience was very impactful. Was it mostly the kind of the coming around after, you know, and realizing you overdosed, you know, I imagine in an ambulance and on your way to a hospital, was that kind of the, uh, the biggest shock of the experience? Um, no, not, not even. Um, so no, you know, this isn't going to sound crazy. I've done a lot of psychedelics as well. Sure. Um, and um, my opinion on those doesn't matter. Um, and the overdose was extremely familiar in the sense of like maybe DMT or maybe really deep into some other type of, uh, you know, psilocybin, LSD, whatever. <clears throat> so basically... Uh, I was ordering food at Taco Bell. I got some drugs from a new person and it looks suspiciously suspicious. Um, and I'd heard that like actual fentanyl 
is crystalline in form. And I was like, this is either meth or like straight fentanyl. So I just did a tiny bit, just a little tiny bit, and I shot it. And I'm trying to think how to tell the story the best. Um, yeah, shot that up. Um, and then basically I was just somewhere else. Like um, there wasn't from there to went anywhere else. It was just doing that. And then I remember being somewhere with another person, I think. Um, no idea who or where. I remember it being like being able to see really far. Um, and then like that was fine. I didn't miss anybody. I didn't know anything was wrong. And then some like darkness or evil shit or whatever um, like started to like creep in and like have like a physical presence wherever I was. And I remember like what's going on, like being confused. And then all of a sudden, like, it just kind of wrapped me up or wrapped the whole situation up. I remember feeling like I was getting pulled. And um, that's where, like, kind of the relativity to DMT or whatever. There was the feeling of, like, literally being, like, shot through a subway tunnel. Like, tell it, like, like physically or whatever, shooting through a blackness, basically, and occasional flashes and stuff. Um, and then whenever that freaking journey ended of being sucked through that tunnel i was just kind of like floating not like in a physical body or whatever just just confusion nothingness whatever just floating in that and then there's like sounds that really hurt and then the sounds slowly turned into words that i couldn't understand uh, or i could hear them but i couldn't understand them and then like after not even knowing what language that was or what year or any anything who i was what i was whatever um, that turned into like my brain had rebooted enough to where I knew my social, like they asked what my social was and that like about that same time there, uh, we were already at the hospital at that point, um, when I did come back or whatever. And then from there it was like, when to, I never get this right. It's like Smith's convulsions or something, uh, where your body involuntary involuntarily or whatever convulses to get blood back into your lungs. So that, and then, I had the sense to tell the cop uh, that I respectfully had no information for him when he was telling me about the various felonies I had accumulated in that incident. And then, I don't know, just being dicks, like whatever they do. Uh, that, that ultimately, something changed there. And like, yeah, I don't want to die. But um, I just kind of remembering this. Another part of that is like the feeling after that. So I didn't, I was still processing like this crazy, basically psychedelic trip and whatever the hell comes from that. I still don't even know what that was. But then also like, I didn't feel like a piece of shit anymore. Like I didn't like all the stuff that I had done, like letting my son down almost, you know, leaving uh, him to figure life out on his own. Like all these other things, they didn't have quite the weight on me that you would expect or I would expect of myself um, there was kind of like some forgiveness or like it kind of is what it is let's let's just make this not happen so that was the that was the direction I talk about going and like not dying and if I'm not going to die let's at least go for something decent so yeah um, <laughs> so is that after that you kind of found uh, the the program that led you to you know, successful recovery. Yeah. So 
I honestly haven't like used the program since then. Like before it was, you know, AA, NA, smart recovery, cognitive behavioral therapy. I've been through most of the treatments or most of the programs that I know exist, at least on a bigger level. And I always had issues with them. And as if they're helping people, I have nothing against them. Um, I'm not trying to say that they're bad in any, you know, uh, format or whatever. Um, but for me, you know, I had the desire to stop using. I just wasn't successful at it. That was a good enough reason for me to stop using because I'm going to die. Every time I had set a new bar in my life for addiction, um, whether it was I'll start here, I'll lose my job, things will suck, whatever, I'll get sober for a little bit. Um, then it's like, all right, I'll be homeless, I'll sleep in a bando, and, you know, whatever. Okay, I'll commit X, Y, and Z crimes. Okay. Um, well, now that we've reached, oh, I'm going to die. And okay, if I go every time I relapse, I went immediate to the point I left off because, in the same way that, like, a new, like, so a man's mind, um, once stretched by a new idea, never regains its original uh, shape. I think it's Oliver Wendell Jr. Well, your, your comfort zone, your what you accept as your reality is kind of the same way, at least for me in addiction, it 100% was. So anytime I'd pick back up an addiction, I would find myself very quickly at the point that I left off um, because I was okay with getting to that point. And that's, that's what happened. So with overdosing and I literally, I got really lucky. I was, I should have gone home and done that. And I happened to go get food um, and wasn't patient enough to get home. Otherwise nobody would have found me for 14 hours. You know, the kids were staying at uh, their grandparents and, it was working and whatever. So, um, I, that's, yeah, for me, that's like a non-negotiable things like that. Keeping myself from getting into the weeds and all the other directions. I always keep forgetting where I'm going. Apologies. You're, you're all good. Oh, the program. Okay. So the program, um, for me, you know, I have a lot of skills from the programs I've gone through, but having the direction of just like, okay, if I use heroin or fentanyl or that's mostly what it is now, um, I'm going to do this again very rapidly. Um, so it was changing my, my situation. Um, I was a handyman, I was a renter, I had nothing, anything, you know, like I've, I've started so many times with a backpack or less, um, that pretty much that's not too far from where I was. You know, maybe I had like a thousand dollar car this time or, you know, um, but what I, probably didn't have a bank account at that point. Maybe I did it like a hundred bucks in it max. Um, so for me, it's like what, like I need to change my situation to change my everything. Um, the relation quality relationships I have or the, the people I associate with on a regular basis, which wasn't anybody. If it was, it's people I would use with or whatever. Um, or the people I'd work for or something like that. Um, but I wanted to provide new opportunities because, you know, happy, healthy, active people are usually like doing stuff or whatever. So that's where I managed to save up a couple of bucks. That's where I mostly spent that on education or whatever. Um, and that was the direction. And that's a lot of my recovery or my program or whatever has been based around financial literacy like first. And then once you understand the things and you know the directions you can go in, 
than like pursuing that education. So like last year I listened to 56 audiobooks, um, 450 podcast episodes, like an hour to half long. And that's just of like two metrics I tracked. There was all kinds of books I read and other podcasts and videos and stuff. Um, but that, that is what I did and that's what I dove into. Um, and I did find a nonprofit um, through one of the podcasts. Their goal was to help children get out of poverty, like maybe high school age or middle school and like start to teach them uh, skills to not to get them out of that because poverty is a cycle just like abuse and addiction and all these other things. A lot of that stuff in my, at least you know, can I can say in my opinion um, is transferred down or, or uh, social or you know, things like that. Um, so I got with those guys and that's one life fully lived. Give them a shout out. Uh, they started to teach me things and that's where I got to hang out with people that uh, were really positive and didn't care about my background. And, um encouraging and things like that so that has been my program is finding people with like goals and like minds and then changing my everything about the way i live my life from diet to how i think so that's really great and especially you know giving back finding you know someone else that might need that hand up yeah um so one of the things and that's, you know, that's something in like all, at least, yeah, most of the recovery programs is helping other people. And one of the things that nonprofit, one of their sayings is like throwing down the rope. And one of the things with that, you only have to be a step ahead of somebody to be able to help them. Uh, uh, it's important to have somebody to look up to and somebody to go to and you need things, but it's also important to um, help other people. And um, that's also one of the skills of like mastery is being able to teach things or, you know, teach somebody and they become better than you are, however all that works. But yeah, so the the nonprofit had nothing to do with recovery, zero to do with addiction recovery. And that's, it's a tricky thing to get into because then you get into like SAMHSA, like substance abuse, mental health, like actual health care. And there's like a lot of lines there. But I was able to work with them and kind of create a whole new offshoot for that nonprofit uh, with addiction recovery. So right now it's just like a, uh, it's borrowing the same principles from either self-help or real estate or a lot of those entrepreneurial ventures, um, which is the mastermind principle, kind of Napoleon Hill, things like that where people you know work together, um, but bringing that to addiction recovery. So we, you know, our role in addiction recovery specifically isn't huge. We're not going to say we're some detox center or we cure things, but the skills that all the skills that I didn't have that I've gained in the last you know year and eight months that have radically transformed my life compared to anything else. Um, those are what we try to bring to that. So relationships, goal setting, uh, vision planning, financial education, financial literacy. Yeah. Well, physical wellness, spiritual, mental, whatever, um, all those things. And the, you know, the things that I saw work for me, I made sure were, were in that for other people. So it's my avenue to get back. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the, uh, there's a quote I want to say is Martin Luther King, which is there's a reason you have two hands, one to pull yourself up and one to pull up the person behind you. That's cool. I've yeah. never heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. That was a 
tangent thought. I'm writing it down. <laughs> you I get. Yeah, um, that's you know that's really that's kind of that's how AA functions. You know, you come in, you get sponsored, you go through the steps, you sponsor someone else. I think one of the best uh, resources for people in addiction recovery. Um, just like people with felonies are incarcerated as other people that have been in their shoes. They know the ins and outs of it. It takes the shame factor down. It takes the, I want to hide these details because what are they going to think of me when that other person has done all the same stuff you have? Um, and I really like that. Um, I think that's a very successful route to get people to talk about and work out things that are hard to do. So, yeah, and I imagine yeah. there's... You know, there's an amount of education about addiction that goes into it and, you know, trying to trying to help people to understand, you know, maybe what they can't see about the addiction itself. Like you were talking about earlier when you said, you know, there's this dependency that you don't necessarily notice, you know, until it's right on top of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of, goodness, Mike Ayala, I think is his name probably butchered it but um he uh he just said something i don't he might have stole a quote from somebody but uh i'm gonna quote him saying it uh like when you're ready the community will appear or like you know when you're ready things present themselves to you and that's i know i mentioned it and one of the reasons like i liked when you were talking about what the podcast is about is just being exposed to these new ideas or new stuff it, it opens up so many new opportunities um so people that necessarily don't know the direction they're going they just maybe want to get better or maybe um like know something's up with their addiction you know what i mean when you can expose them to other stories and whatever more relatable things it kind of yeah opens up new doors so i'm happy to be on this podcast too yeah, it's the same principle so, i love having you on here it's it's been great um just like, yeah, you know, people will listen to it and maybe they think, you know, here's someone who found their way out and it doesn't have to be, you know, such a strict, rigid system and I can, you know, I can find a thing that, you know, interests me and I can find a way to make it work for me and I can help others when I'm, you know, at a good place. Yeah. Um, and if they haven't, then they at least definitely know they don't want to go down this path. Right. <laughs> Avoid that like the plague. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes me um, kind of think about like our early education systems. Um, I know when I was going through school, they had like, obviously way back when I was going through school, but they had D.A.R.E. Um, and I've heard since that D.A.R.E. is like one of the most harmful programs that ever uh, came around. I don't. I don't have any statistics on that. I, yeah, we're taking a completely different approach with our kids. I mean, we don't know the exact approach um, yet. You know, we were seven and a two-year-old, but um, I mean, I fully intend on being when they're able to comprehend uh, more complex things. I want them to know what goes on. Um, I didn't. I was sheltered from all that. So it's like, oh, weed's awesome. All the other drugs are probably pretty cool too. And the, you know, when I went and discovered it, and that's like a quote from back then. I'm not telling everybody what he thought. Yeah. Um, but um, it's like, oh, they lied to me. What else did they lie about? And I think that there is something to being, you know, honest or 
yeah, I, I learned all of the street things that I know, like firsthand and a lot of, yeah, whatever. Um, I think that the, beyond the dare system, I think that the, like, I, I know this, like for sure, this isn't like maybe, uh, the criminal justice system, the prison systems, the corporations that sell ankle monitors, um, that, that is like a machine that has to be fed. Um, and this all, if you go back in history, like 1988, 1980 to 1990, um, when we really like, you know, uh, just say no, like the Reagan administration cracking down on drugs. And then the things that have come from that, uh, you have a lot of money that needs an enemy or that needs a purpose, um, being put into this, um, like marijuana being a schedule one narcotic fentanyl being schedule two methamphetamine being three um and then you look at like how actually deadly are these things and you know stuff like that um there's so much reform needed in the prison systems and the criminal justice or the war on drugs um i think that was extremely extremely devastating to a lot of communities cultures whatever just people from you know a to b but specifically poor people poor people seem to be the most impacted by certain laws and certain regulations yeah yeah i uh, i don't know the ins and outs of it but i had heard that was the part of the crime bill is that it had a heavier punishment for crack cocaine which was far more likely to be found in uh areas of high poverty than actual you know normal cocaine which was likely to be found in a higher end yeah um so this is where like mandatory minimums all these things come in um and then for obvious reasons i've been passionate about learning these things um but yeah um specifically minority communities uh with the crack cocaine or just poor communities and a lot of people think of like crack in the 80s black people in the 90s um but a lot of the or white community would come into those neighborhoods and purchase it and things like that. Um, I think it was 10 times, and this is basically a guess, but I want to say it was 10 times um, the punishment for cocaine versus crack cocaine. And there's chemical variations um, are created depending on the way that you turn cocaine into crack cocaine, so three bays, um, and then what we call crack cocaine. Um, and they're both extremely, it's all extremely addictive. But yeah, once it had made that basically that little chemical change, um, an ounce of crack or you know, uh, ten ounces of cocaine is actually, I'll say a little bit different. But an ounce of crack to an ounce of cocaine, you were getting ten years in prison compared to uh, one. And they were, you know, they were rough on everything, and still can be. Those laws haven't necessarily changed. Um, there's been minor, minor tweaks, but. For me, I had to spend two years in prison because I had a bulk amount of ecstasy. What would you think? This is actually a good question. Sure. What would you think the bulk amount of ecstasy is? Um, a bulk amount. I'd have to say like a thousand pills. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm, five. Oh. Five ecstasy pills is bulk. Um, and then it becomes a felony too. Um, so one through five, one being worse, five being the easiest. Every state uses a different scale for felonies, whether it's letters, numbers, whatever. But for Ohio specifically, ones like murder, home invasion, things there, or extremely high amounts of things. So 
um, thousand times the bulk amount or a hundred times or things like that. Um, so those are your most heinous crimes are the ones, twos, then threes, fours, fives, fives being like your third DUI. Um, so yeah, five times is the bulk or five actually fills the bulk amount. To me, that's heinous. Um, I'm not saying ecstasy is even a good thing. I, I think like MDMA has a therapeutic use according to research in a therapeutic environment with a professional cool but um yeah it's it's pretty gnarly um the drug laws so the person i'll just this is and this is good just for people to know so when i got in trouble for selling trafficking drugs um i had sold somebody some ecstasy pills they sold somebody five ecstasy pills there's that magic number again that was a cop we'll just say that that was a cop they went and arrested him. I'm trying to use like easy terms and not like street terms and stuff. Um, he didn't want to go to jail for bulk possession of you know ecstasy. He's looking at up to five years, basically one to five years. Um, and so he was like, "Oh, okay, I'll tell you where I got it." And then um, I sold him 50 times the bulk amount of ecstasy uh, altogether, roughly. Um, and then when they came to me, and that's kind of how the drug game works from the law enforcement side so they count on little fish to medium fish to bigger fish to big fish um so like this you know however many months they were pursuing me when i stopped that because i don't uh doesn't matter when i stopped that at me um then they like well if you're all we get we're gonna throw the hammer at you or throw the book at you or whatever um, and it's really weird because when I was when they were trying to get me to wear the team jersey, is what they called it. Um, I was like, "Dude, I'll give you some heroin dealers right now, like right now." And this is 2009. The exact response I got from I'm just, I like this actually, I like this platform <laughs> uh, from Bruce Mays, the director of the Green County Ace Task Force here in Ohio, was, um, "We don't go after heroin dealers because there's five more to replace every one we take off the street. We want." Uh, marijuana growers we want uh, psychedelic traffickers we want these things um, but specifically they want marijuana growers because people that grow marijuana to take a variable out of it of like if I was renting a house and growing marijuana my landlord could come over to fix a light bulb and be like oh you're growing weed and then that whole thing's collapsed somebody that owns a property whether it's worth little or a lot has control over that property and who comes in and out. So marijuana tends to get grown in places that people own. Um, if we go arrest five, let's say five heroin dealers on the west side of Dayton, I swear about my heroin, um, more than likely they might own a vehicle and have however much cash they can keep on them. If we go arrest five marijuana growers, we more than likely are uh, getting through civil asset forfeiture through these same drug laws we're talking about. If we arrest five of them, let's say we'll get three properties out of that and cars and cash and anything else that they're tied to that we can tie to them growing marijuana. So now we're funding, we're putting that money back in our pockets so we can go do this more. So it is ultimately about money. That's sorry I had to tie that all back together. Um, you can kind of follow the money in a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, there's a certain amount paid for inmates, there's a certain amount paid through government grants and to make sure that they have drug teams and that they have, you know, cameras and drones and heat seeking or heat cameras on 
special vehicles, whatever. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff tied into this staying going. I'll quit. Uh, I could go on forever. So that, that's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know any of that, um, and yeah. I would I would doubt most people do because you don't think like, oh yeah, they got some guy for growing weed. You're not thinking like, oh, they also got his house and his car and his, you know, everything else tied to him any bank account he had so one of the things that like um i had to pull this up for some other stuff i was doing um uh you can go through my documents for my court cases on that prison case with the trafficking drugs they they basically ran through any bank accounts i might have any assets i might have um anything i luckily i was poor and didn't have stuff to take so um yeah that probably made it matter but um, yeah, that's something that they do. That's a regular thing. Like that's a just step B, step C, whatever in their process of enforcing the drug laws. Right. So. And uh, as much as I'd love to drag someone on the show that <laughs> uh, has the power, you know, in reform in prison, um, I mean, the U.S. rehabilitation uh, is kind of a joke at this point like you know sending people to jail is a punishment it's not like they're hoping you get better because they sent you to jail yeah the rehabilitation part is it's completely separate it's and it's technically they actually dropped that in ohio it's the department ohio department of corrections oh. well odoc um and then uh yeah we're, we're gonna go here um and then um so the way I look at it is human warehousing. There is a dollar amount paid per inmate. Um, I, I'll start shaking my camera if I type on my laptop. But um, yeah, we'll just say it's roughly $35,000 per head per person per year that they're in there. Whether they stay six months or a year or three months or a year or whatever, there's there's a federal amount of income that comes in the state amount. So they talk about it costing people. It does cost taxpayers. But there's entire towns all over this country that are solely dependent on the one, two, three prisons that that operate there. That's where most of the people work or they work in service, like food service or something to support the people that work at these prisons. Um, there's entire economies built around it. Um, but as far as like the actual inmates are concerned, um, the only program that was related to helping me when I got out, uh, I think it had a seven year wait list um so if you have if you didn't have seven years to stay there you weren't getting in that program and they only let like eight people through a year anyways um there wasn't anything beneficial that came from that it was fighting and drinking and smoking and what can we get away with and um it was it was it was really um there's a lot to it i don't know if you've read uh, dr victor frankel's a man's search for meaning yeah it's the um the Holocaust. Book, yeah, about the Holocaust where he finds, like, if I don't sweep, no one will sweep, right? So I have to stick around to kind of just, you know, find that purpose. Uh, yeah, so, he, you know, his, his purpose, or I, I don't want to say for sure. Um, I actually just listened to it not too, too long ago again. Uh, but basically, yeah, it's the whole, he, so he was a psycho uh, psychoanalyst or a, um, a shrink or whatever, you know, whatever the term is for whatever he did. 
Um, so he kind of analyzed his own experience through that lens and then reflects back on it and the things that made him see things the way they, that he did. And, um, like through his training and, um, there's so much of that, that relates to prisons. So like uh, my name in there didn't mean shit. My number was a six, three, nine, two Oh six. They didn't tattoo it on my arm or, you know, stuff like that. But, um, you know, there was, there were so many things that are paralleled with that. Um, they would, they did not like unity. Um, you did not want the inmates being unified on any front, whether it was racism or it was religion. It did not matter that that was, that was something they did not like. Um, they would just randomly change shit. So you couldn't get comfortable. And when you can't get comfortable and things are changing, you're confused, you're, whatever they would find ways to like pit people against each other. The more inmates fighting there, the more we need a game coordinator, the more we need all these other things. That's more funding. That's, you know, them not being able to work together is them is us having control of them. Um, there's, there's so many facets to this. Um, yeah, I went to the hole for 36 days straight on one stretch. Um, and you don't know whether it's like day or night out, uh, what time it is. They don't talk to you. Uh, you get a rough idea by the meals, which vary in a few hours. And like, uh, there was a lot of stuff in there that like, I really had to work through actually somewhat recently because yeah, that's not a place where you send people to get better. You were just housing them in a storage facility for X amount of years because that's what the law says. It's not, it's not even a punishment though. Like it, it is because you're not with society or with your family. Like that's the punishment. But besides that, I had an MP3 player, a flat screen TV, video games. Uh, I could order whatever food from the commissary at least. Um, they'd have like pizza parties. They do all this crazy shit to keep you complacent because you can't make it a punishment or else people are going to fucking hate it and revolt and they're not easy to control. Let's give them TVs. Let's give them music. Let's give them beds and whatever and make them comfortable. And then I think a lot of that recidivism ties back into that. If it's not that bad and like your tattoos are super cheap and you know, like dude, get started on this. Um, <laughs> then, you know, like what's so bad about going back and yeah, there's, there's an extremely broken system. I got out of there with, I think they call it gate pay, like 60 bucks. Like here's 60 bucks for your life out. Be at your probation officers 400 miles away on uh, tomorrow. Oh, okay. I hope somebody comes. You know, like shit's crazy, dude. Yeah. Wow. It's a it's a form of extracting money too, because if you pay for the TVs, you pay for the food. Um, your family pays for this stuff for you, or if you have any like, things to draw from. Um, when your family comes up, they pay to take pictures. They pay to buy you food at the visits. Um, the phone calls were five dollars for fifteen minutes in 2010, 2011, 2013 in a time when a long distance phone call hasn't existed for however long. Um, if you were Mexican and your family was in Mexico, it was $20 for 15 minutes or $30 in some cases. And, um, $5 was local. Um, so there, there's so many industries drawing money from, uh, they've expanded it. Now you can like email and text. And there's like whatever, 99 cents an email. There's, it's a, it's a way to extract money. Like this is a big corporate system. This isn't a, this is the right thing to do. 
just kind of wanted to break that down how this stuff works no i mean it makes sense you know they're like hey if i keep you you know locked up for even extra time if i can find something that you know you did you're not supposed to do then i get paid for that time and i get paid for the phone calls you're using during that time and i get paid for the you know like every every little thing starts compiling pretty quick at that point when they're yeah i want to say it was roughly a hundred dollars a week um for me to be semi-comfortable in there and that was yeah um and like you know i'm my mom didn't have that kind of money um there all kinds of other stuff kind of came from this not in like a criminal way but just in like the stress it put on my family and uh, stuff like that i was very lucky about the support system i did um but yeah there's a lot that i found problems with and there i got classed as a gang member as an i got classed as an unclassed gang member that was my official what gang i belonged to was unclassed and, and it really bugged me for a while. I'm like, fuck. Um, and then it, I realized, like, oh, shit, the more gang members you have, that's a grant. That's a fund. That's, a, you know, oh, it's that much more dangerous in here. It's going to take that much more security. Now we, have, we can hire these guys an extra two hours per week and shift. Or, you know what I mean? So it just if it feeds itself. And the laws help in the yeah, way he- things work. Even if they're not getting money directly from you, they're using you to get more money somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and there is, I mean, I'm not trying to say people don't need to be locked up. There's murderers and there's rapists. And I literally watch sex offenders um, come in, leave, and reoffend over those three years um, because of how we look at drugs versus how we look at things that one person does directly to victimize another person. And you know, all these are matters of perception and social perception. And, um, I feel really strongly about that. So just stay away from that one. But, um, yeah, you know, and I'm in there without a technical like victim in comparison to someone that, you know, molested a child. And so I felt some type of way, we'll put it that way. And then, you know, really diving into this stuff. It, um, yeah, I don't know what it was designed for besides, um, money. It it definitely feels like it started with this, you know, potentially positive, like, hey, if we can get all the people who need help to be, you know, better citizens together, you know, we can help them all in one spot. And eventually that uh, took a pretty gross turn away from the, uh, you know, any kind of government directly involved as a program. And it turned into this private, you know, like you said, warehousing yeah um yeah uh i'm not gonna keep on that stuff um i did try to they technically had a college in there um but it only taught culinary arts and then i did actually i'm a certified animal trainer by the ohio department of labor um i trained a house broke dogs and i got to keep a dog for a long time so no qualms um, but when I received my certificate and I did my 3000 hours of training, um, and I got out of prison, that was one of the first things I tried to use. I'm like, Oh, we'll shit. I'm a dog trainer. You know, I have this piece of paper. I have to be one. I actually took it to the place that trained me, which is Four Paul's Academy in Xenia. And I said, Hey, you know, um, what kind of, you know, is there anything I can do with this? It's like, Oh God, no, we don't hire, we don't hire you guys. I'm like, okay. All right. Well, somebody should have led with that, but. 
Um, and then anywhere I did try to apply it, it was seen as a joke, and it kind of was. But you know, it's it's they they put on facades of like, oh no, but we're doing this and this. And ultimately, you know, crazy shit. Right. <laughs> Sorry to skew way, way off tangents. I, I, dude, I, yeah, I take I, it there too. So realize i'm just gonna make this thing really depressing well <laughs> you know somebody's yeah, gotta be yeah you gotta talk about it yeah sorry i had some uh i had some just kind of questions i didn't know if i'd find a place to slot them in or if i just ask them kind of out of you know left field yeah shoot um and i don't know if this is something you know because of having gone through it but is there a uh, like a genetic impact on addiction versus just a environmental, like based on your surroundings? Uh, so, you know, I don't know that from a genetics, epigenetics, you know, studied in uh, whatever Stanford school for however many years okay. uh, place, but for myself and then the addiction in my family, like specifically, um, uh, laterally or whatever that line would be. Um, neither of my parents have drug addictions, neither, none of my grandparents, um, or aunts and uncles. Um, and me, I've got all half and stepbrothers. I have three stepsisters and a stepbrother or half stepsisters, half brother. Um, all but one of us has had addiction issues or is still having addiction issues for me these are social issues these are the way that you're raised the things that you're taught the way that you're taught to or not to handle things what you find acceptable what uh the influence of the people around you your friends your parents your step parents these things um to me are what cause or cause addiction to show up ultimately trauma and followed by not being able to process it and finding other ways to either self-medicate self-soothe or completely um handle it in an adverse way yeah so. i just um like i said i don't i don't know the answer to it but i think it's interesting either way you know to know that hey just because there's no genetic tie like that doesn't mean this person's not at risk and i know they say you know the number one indicator of crime is poverty so it's a a self-fulfilling cycle unfortunately yeah and that's you know we talked about this earlier in the podcast i when it comes to our kids you know that's obviously whether it's genetic or social or just cycle um or economic um we want to make sure that, you know, if it's genetics and genes that can't be changed, um, then we want to at least give them skills to hopefully avoid it. And if it's not, then we sure as hell need to realize what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're thinking, how we're passing things on to the kids to make sure that we don't set them up for failure or try our best not to. Yeah. And I mean, that's a really important thing that I think, everyone you know not just people who've had addiction anywhere in their life but everyone you know can learn 
you know, what are these key things you can do to help keep your kids from maybe making the mistakes you made or, you know, to, to try and steer them, you, you hope, in a better direction? Um, yeah. Um, I've gotten into this with other people that don't have addiction problems and the way that they, certain experiences they remember from their lives. And, like, something I'm noticing is the way that kids are feeling empowered through new activities or experiences or uh rituals for not like you know ceremony or whatever, but yeah rituals with their families like holidays so like i grew up without holidays um or it just from the religion i grew up in um different values placed on different things than most people or lack of and there's a lot of stuff that makes me feel like it was more trauma and certain perceptions i was given of the world more so than a genetic imbalance or a chemical imbalance i'm sure i've caused all kinds of those from my drug use yeah are there any strategies you'd recommend if there was someone out there who was nervous and wasn't sure how to approach this topic with someone um yeah i mean that, that could be really complex um but like in, in one of uh, like, so there's a book called uh, "Wisdom for Cooling the Ang- uh, Flames of Anger" by Teek Nhat Han. He's like a monk from somewhere, so I don't remember where he's at. But um, that book changed the way that I relate to people, that I communicate with people, that I deal with any of my relationships with. So if you're the way that I'm relating that book to this question, um, if it's somebody that you either want to speak to about stuff, um, who has the problem or you have the problem, um, kind of recognizing where you are. Um, if you're angry about something somebody's done or angry with yourself, um, basically like the cycles we talked about with addiction and poverty and all these other things, uh, anger tends to perpetuate itself too. Um, when you were hurt, you make somebody else feel bad. Um, because you know, kind of that misery loves company saying, um when you actively decide to make things better instead of like when the goal is to get better for us the goal is always to get better we fight to some extent but we're on the same team and we have the same end goal if we're misaligned on something we figure it out um we don't hold shit against each other for saying the wrong things and we try not to hurt each other for no reason it doesn't help so the same thing when you're talking to somebody um, is like being patient. You know, either if you're looking for help or trying to help someone else, if somebody says something that's not necessarily helpful, um, like don't take it personally. They might not know better or something or the, whatever answer you were looking for. Or I'm extremely patient with myself now. Um, and that helps me. Um, if I hold myself to too high of a standard, let myself down whatever of course i let myself down but um just making sure that i'm patient with myself and patient with others and then i don't i'm trying to make things better i'm always trying to make things better if it's going to make things worse you know it's probably the wrong use of my energy so i probably just butchered what that whole book's about too but that's <laughs> that's what i have for that um and then yeah being open to things and you don't necessarily have to agree with something too either try it or empathize uh, sympathize you have to have to know it is empathize, I think. but yeah just 
and try to make stuff better. Don't enable, I'm not saying that, but try to make things better. Be patient. Yeah, that's good. And again, I've kept you here for over an hour and 15 minutes at this point. I don't want to steal your whole day away from you. But uh, if there was someone out there listening who might be struggling with addiction and they want to find that, you know, that way out, is there any advice that you'd want to give them? I mean, the, like if they haven't found it yet, it definitely is possible. Like they haven't found other people to look up to or uh, people to role model. It's extremely possible. Um, and I think, I know we talked about my personal program or whatever with the resources we have online, there's almost no questions that can't be answered outside of like, what does God look like specifically in your picture? You know, like sure. something that like that crazy or whatever, but, um, just keep seeking help, like keep getting better. Don't use people, but try to constantly make progress. Um, and that's, it's a rough freaking thing to, to do. And it may not always be perfect, but knowing or like actually, you know, going in that direction of getting better and different stuff works for different people. Um, if something worked for them and didn't work for you, um, it just may not be the right one. But as long as you're constantly moving in that direction and getting better, you are making progress. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today. If people want to find you, where could they find you? Uh, so I got a personal website. It's not very good, but uh, sterlingshroud.com is one of the at least own the domain. Um, and then also the work I do with that nonprofit, their websites, uh, the number one, so onelifefullylived.com or .org. Yeah. Okay. One life fully lived.org. All right. Yeah. And then anybody that I try to be as helpful as possible. So don't hesitate. All right. That's awesome. And I appreciate it again so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please reach out, tell family, coworkers, friends, anything uh, to listen to it. I would greatly appreciate any support you can give us. If you've really enjoyed it, you could go on to Apple Podcast or Stitcher or Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Just leave a good review. Um, maybe if it's really funny, I'll read it on the show. I enjoy good humor. Um, or if you have a good dumb example, I'll, maybe I'll read that too. Uh, otherwise, if you want to reach out to us, I'm on social media, Dumb Enough Podcast pretty much everywhere. Or you could reach out at dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for guests or questions for guests or just want to chat, reach out to me there. I'll get a hold of you. All right. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.